The scripture reading comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 11 to 13. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. It's the word of God. All right, can you guys hear me? All right. So the elders, we were talking about who's going to who's going to preside today, and um, uh, we our, our our elders are traveling; they're gone. Uh, we weren't sure if every, if everyone if uh, any of the elders would be around to preside. Um, so uh, if you guys have seen that um, movie Austin Powers, and uh, there's that one who did who, who uh, Austin Powers, he he does this uh, he says this um, line: "Allow myself to introduce myself." Uh, Sammy sent that that meme to us, so. Um, I'm not going to introduce myself because you know who I am, but uh, I, it's now I'm going to switch to uh, preacher mode, so that's what we're going to do, and thank you, Faye, for reading the text today for us, and um, we're going through First Thessalonians this summer, and Tom and I, we're going to go through uh, the rest of this book together until um, August or September, and this this is particular book, First Thessalonians, it's the first of two letters that the Apostle Paul writes to the young church in Thessalonica. And one of the primary themes that we see in the book is the return of Christ. And if Christ really is returning, and he is, how should we live in light of that truth? If you're a part of a CG, you've been talking about this with your group the past few weeks, and as we go through the sermon, as we go through this letter, we want to be reminded of what does it mean that Christ is returning, and how how should I live? What does it mean to be a, a child of light? What does it mean to belong to the light or a child of the day? And the past few weeks we've been looking at the dynamic between the Thessalonian church and those ministering to the Thessalonian church. It's um, Paul, his colleagues, Silas and Timothy. And what, he's, what we learn as we read through the text is the gospel has taken root in the Thessalonian church. The members have been changed by the gospel, and there are good things, encouraging happening, encouraging things happening in the church. And in the letter, Paul expresses his joy, his happiness, and we see in it this, this longing to be with the church. If you if we read through chapters one and two, we see this kind of aching for Paul to be with the church that he loves. And today we're going to look at just these three verses. And actually, Pastor Tom, when he spoke last week, he read through these verses. And um, I'm going to—I told him, Paul, uh, Tom, I'm going to go back just a few verses because I feel like they're—they're. They're, um, he, he did a great job, by the way. I, I appreciate just how he talked about the the power that we have as believers in Christ. And. Um, as he spoke from the text. And what I want to do is I want to just back up a little bit into verses 11 and 13 and drill down. And what does it mean that Paul, what's Paul praying for, for the Thessalonian church? Um, and how does this help understand Paul's heart for the church? How does it help us understand why he prays the things he does for the church? So we're just going to go into the text, which Faye read. And... Um, Two main sections to my message today. Number one is, what do we see about Paul's heart for the church as a minister? And number two, what is it exactly that he prays for? So let's look at what Paul's heart for the church is. So if we look at verse 11, he, Paul tells us, one of my prayers is that I will be able to spend time with you. But we see in chapter 2 of First Thessalonians, it says that Satan hindered 
Paul and his colleagues from seeing the Thessalonian church. And Paul, he he's so uh, brokenhearted that he can't be with this church that he loves. And Paul, because he can't be with them in person, he says, Thessalonian church, this is what I'm going to pray for you. This is what I want to be true of your church. So the first part of this prayer is this, that he would be allowed to see the church. And... Um, as we and as we go through these verses, I want us to see how do we see Paul's heart for the church? Um, how do we see Paul's heart as a minister? And let, let me just go through those. So the first is this: that Paul he makes every effort to be with the people that he is serving. We see in this a deep investment in the welfare of the church. We see that his heart is hurting and breaking. It, it, it's to the point where if he can't be with this church that he loves. He is shedding tears. His heart hurts. There is a steep ache to be with this church. And this is one of the qualities of someone who should be leading a church, is this deep investment in the people that he's serving. He goes on in verses 12 and 13. He says, I'm gonna, I want God to make you increase and abound in love. I want you to be blameless in holiness before Christ comes, in light of his coming. So we see in this prayer, we see his, Paul's heart for the church. Not only does he hurt for the people that he serves, he also trusts God and trusts these people to God. So Paul entrusted people by, to God as evidenced by his prayer for them. He asked God to grow them in love and holiness. He asked God to help them understand what it is that they're teaching. Paul understands his place in the work of God, and he understands that prayer is foundational in his relationship to the church. And I'll, I'll break these down as uh, we go through the text. But um, what is it that we should look for in someone who cares for the church, for the leader, for the pastor, for the for the elder, for um, for anyone who has influence in the church? What is it that we should expect of the people up here, the people that pray for you guys, the people that serve you. I spoke with Pastor Jesse a few days ago, and um, I'm excited for you guys. Um, he will be joining our church in hopefully in the come in within four or five weeks, and um, I'm so glad that many of you are also excited. And we should thank God that He's bringing Pastor Jesse and Jessica to our church, and we can look forward to this next season of ministry with him. But at the same time, we should not look to our senior pastor to fix things or tweak things or make Indelible Grace Church exactly how we want it to be. It's not really up to him. It is to some extent because that's why we're hiring him, um, but not really. Jesse is a man under orders. He's been called to serve this church just as I have, just as the elders have. And what do we need to care about? How should we approach our work as elders and pastors? We need to trust God, just like Paul did. We need to submit to God. We need to understand our place in the work of God. We need to pray to God on your behalf. Because this church does not belong to me or to Pastor Jesse or to the elders or the leaders or whoever, you want to put your, your, whoever you want to identify, this church belongs to God. If anything good happens in this church, God gets the credits. And shame on us 
if we have ever made this church more about a man or a woman or a group than we have about Jesus. And shame on any church that makes their ministry more about a person than they do about Christ. And if you're excited because so-and-so is preaching or disappointed that so-and-so is not preaching, um, we should check our hearts. Because you should understand the role of a leader, a minister, a pastor in the church. Um, a few years ago, uh, Christina and I, we, we, were, we were in New York, and of course, if you belong to the PCA and you're in Manhattan, um, you want to visit Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Um, this was Tim Keller's church, and uh, we they have like eight or ten services on Sundays, and um, we went, and um, uh, someone said, oh, Tim Keller is going to be preaching. Well, okay, that's cool. That's what we're expecting. And they're like, no, it's... Um, Actually, um, if, if you were hoping to, to listen to Tim Keller, very often you're going to be disappointed because how it's designed in their church is Tim Keller knows, he knew that people wanted to go to his church to listen to him. And he knew that this is not how it should be. You shouldn't go to a church for a person. So he would have his uh, other pastors preach in the other services, multiple sites um, throughout Manhattan, and he would preach at one or two of the services. And if you got him, um, awesome. If you didn't get him, also awesome, because the word was still being preached, whether or not it was Tim Keller. Because that is where God is going to do his work, not through primarily a person, but through his word. And if you've listened to me preach over the past 13 months that we've been without a senior pastor, I've shared this sentiment multiple times, many times actually, and at this point I'm kind of tired of talking about it, I'm kind of tired, kind of, tired of beating this drum, but I see it in the text, so um, maybe God wanted us to hear it, um, I'll try not to talk about it um, unless it's in the text. And the reason I communicate this, the reason why I care about this so much is because I don't want this church to be a place where people have the wrong expectations of their pastors and leaders. Because if you have the wrong expectations of your pastors and leaders, you will inevitably be hurt and disappointed by them. Once you realize that the pastors and elders are not all that, that this church is not all that, and I know some of you guys will heartily say amen to that because you yourself have uh, been disappointed by us. Have the proper expectations. I'm not saying that we should lower our expectations of the leaders in the church or any other church. In fact, we should raise our expectations of the leaders. What example is Paul setting for us in First Thessalonians? Here is someone who trusts God, who gives the church over to God. And for us as a church, when you think of a pastor or a leader, an elder, have these expectations of them. Expect them to rely on God. Expect them to pray. Expect them to invest their lives and their hearts and emotions in the church. Expect them to preach sermons that make people in awe of who Jesus is rather than show the crowd how smart or clever they are. Expect your leaders, your pastors, to hurt for the congregation. Expect them to be simple and faithful and predictable. 
expect them to, for example, pick up the trash when no one's looking because they don't care about attention. They just want Jesus to be experienced in the church. Expect them to make their name small and the name of Jesus big. This is what you should be expecting of your leaders. And really, this really might be a call for us to raise our expectations about what should happen in the church. Because who does Paul pray to? He prays to God, understanding that it is going to be God who does anything in the church. So raise your expectations about what God can and will do in the church. Raise your expectations about how God can change the hearts of the people in the church. And this is what Paul prays for. God will be glorified in this church when we entrust our people and when we entrust our ministry to God and not to the gifting of the leaders in the church. And you probably know of churches, other groups, who put so much faith in the wrong expectations in the leaders and things fall apart and people are hurt. And may that, may God spare us from that. There are implications here for the leaders of the church. There are also implications for those of us who belong to indelible, indelible Grace Church. Because the heart that Paul exemplifies in this letter is not just for pastors or ministers. This is a heart that is an example for all of us. Anyone who calls this church our spiritual home, we should aim to be like Paul. Do we really trust God to change hearts here at this church? During the prayer meetings at 10 a.m. in the library, during children's church, during our services, during our CG meetings throughout, throughout the week, do you rely more on what your group or what you or these teachers can do? Or do you rely on God? Do you trust God? Do you pray to God and ask Him to do something? And if you complain about not having your needs met in a certain place, if you complain about things that you don't like in a church or an organization, is your first instinct not to criticize, but to pray to God and ask Him to do whatever it is He wants to do, either in someone else's heart or in your heart. And this was Paul's heart. This deep love and affection for the church, and also a deep trust that even if Paul can't do what he wants to do in the church, God Himself will do what God wants to do in the church. This is the heart of Paul. And then second, the second part, the prayer of Paul. Let me read again, verse 12. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you. Paul says, may you grow in your love. And he uses these two words in Greek that's, um, that we're reading here in the ESV. Uh, he uses the, word, the Greek words for increase and abound. And these are basically the same words. These are synonyms. They're saying the same thing. And this is a way for Paul to express through his writing what he's asking for, how strongly he's asking for a type of love to be experienced in the Thessalonian church. God, Paul is asking God to grow the love of the Thessalonians in 
super abounding ways, if I were to make up a word, in a way that overflows, that cannot be contained. This is why he says, may this love increase, may this love abounds out of the Thessalonians. And may this love be directed in two directions. The first is to those in the church, and then for the rest of the world. And I'm going to look at, we'll look at these two directions in just a moment. But let me point out, if you're looking at the text on your phone or your Bible or the bulletin, Paul says, May your love increase and abound as we do for you. This has been true of Paul and of Silas and Timothy, these people who serve the church. Why do their hearts hurt when they can't be there for the Thessalonian church? It's because their love has increased and abounded. And do you love other people in the same way? Does it hurt you when other people hurt? Does it hurt you when you can't be there for them? This is the type of love that Paul is speaking about. So, the two directions. First, toward the church. What do we do for those in the church? How we serve. This should come from a place of love. Not primarily obligation. One of the ways that you love people is by fulfilling your obligations. One of the ways that you love people is by being faithful and predictable and reliable and fulfilling your duties, even if you don't, even if you don't feel like it. That really is what love is. It's um, sacrificing for someone. Who, who feels like sacrificing? You have to be full of love for someone to sacrifice for them. But it's not primarily obligation that Paul talks about here. He's talking about this love and affection and desire that starts in the central place of your being, the heart. And he says, may this love for other people be expressed in the church. And the church is where we're forced to be in a community with people that we don't naturally get along with. Some of you, I know, don't even like each other. That's cool. So then what shall we do? This is what we do. We ask God to give us a heart for others in the church. We ask God to give other people a heart for others in the church. And I'll talk about more, more about that in just a moment. But um, that's the first direction. The, other, the second direction is for the rest of the world. So remember the Thessalonian church is situated in a pagan society. And they are facing persecution. And Paul says, may your love be expressed outward toward even these people, these people who hate you, these people who disrespect you. And to the Thessalonian church, to love the world means that they give themselves up, they allow themselves to be hated and misunderstood in the light of persecution. They're willing to give up their creature comforts, and they're willing to share the gospel and care for those outside the church. If you look at church history, and if you look at the, the history of the, the Western world in general, who was it that did what kings and kingdoms could not do? Very often it was the Christians who did the dirty work of loving other people, sacrificing themselves, giving up their time and money and energy when no one else wanted to do the dirty work of caring for the sick and the poor. And this is what Paul is saying he wants to be true of the Thessalonian church. 
So let me go take a little excursus into why he's praying for love. Love is something that is a very ambiguous concept if we don't drill down on it. So let me look at love from one particular angle in just this moment as it relates to the text. Do you think about the things that you do? Everything that you do comes out of a desire for something. And what determines your desires? It's what you love. What you do, what you say, what you spend your money on, this is all an expression of what you really love. What we desire determines how we think and ultimately how we act. And Paul says, love needs to shape that desire. In the church, love needs to flow, service needs to flow from love, ministry needs to be defined by what we want. It's not what we say is important to the church that defines our ministry. It's not our mission statements or what shows up on our about page on our website. These are not really the, the, the things that define the ministry of IGC. It's not what we affirm in the Bible that defines our ministry. At the end of the day, our ministry is going to be defined by what we love. At the end of the day, the ministry of Indelible Grace Church is going to be defined by what you love. If you love evangelism, or discipleship, or musical worship, or children's ministry, or mercy ministry, then that is what your ministry is going to be defined by. But, if what you really, really love is the suburban lifestyle, if what you really love is hanging out with your friends, if what you really love is just hanging out with the same group of people and living a comfortable lifestyle, then guess what Indelible Grace Church is going to look like? Because what you love is what defines what the ministry of Indelible Grace Church will look like. And Paul says, this is why I'm praying for love to increase and abound. I want there to be love not for comfort or a certain type of lifestyle, but a love for those in the church. A love that's directed outward. Love is what ultimately sustains the work that we do. Love requires a heart change. And how do we increase and abound in love? Think about the things that you, you um, don't like. So... Um, I was telling someone earlier, I was listening to um, this like hard rock band while I was driving here, and uh, I, we were talking about types of music that we don't love, and uh, there's a certain type of music that I really dislike, um, you can ask me about it later, but think about your own musical taste. Let's say that you love jazz music, and you dislike all other types of jazz music. How do you learn to love R&B, or hard rock, or classical music? or if you're into sports, if you love men's soccer, how can you learn to love the WNBA? Or if you love Mediterranean food and you, and you dislike all other types of cuisines, how do you learn to love sushi? It's really hard to change the things that you love 
It would take a really long time, and it would require forcing yourself to experiment with a lot of things and to, to make yourself try things that you don't enjoy. And did you know that loving people in the church and loving the rest of the world, truly loving them, is way more difficult than changing your preferences and tastes in either food or sports or music? Because loving people involves the human hearts. And the human heart, like I've said before, is the most difficult thing to change in the entire world. So then what is the answer? What is the answer to Paul's prayer? The answer to Paul's prayer is the gospel. Only the gospel can change hearts for good. Only the gospel can change our desires. Only the gospel can change what it is that we love. The gospel is a message of God's reconciling love towards sinners who hated him. God sending his son toward the world, to the world that rebelled and sinned against him. And instead of judging them and pouring out his wrath on them as they deserve, this is you and me, by the way, he gives them Christ, and Christ lives a life that they could not live. He died the death that they deserved, giving us his righteousness and taking on our sin, receiving the just penalty, the wrath of God on himself so that we could be sons and daughters of God. And this is what changes us. When we experience the gospel, we begin to develop new desires and loves. The biggest is that we love God and holiness and that we hate sin. And this is unnatural. Your natural person hates God. Your natural person hates holiness. Your natural person loves sin. But the gospel will give you unnatural loves. The gospel will give you a love that you did not think was possible in your own hearts. And the gospel is a slow work. God can open your eyes and change you in an instant. But the real work of transformation happens slowly. And when Paul prays this prayer for the Thessalonians, he's praying it with the understanding that God isn't going to magically make it happen in an instant. Paul is going to continue to pray this prayer for them because it's going to happen over the course of time, week after week, year after year, from one degree of glory to another. The word we have for this in the Bible is sanctification. We become more like Christ, not in an instant, but slowly, imperceptibly sometimes. And what does that mean for us? It means that we all need to be engaged in the life of the church on a regular basis, in a disciplined manner. Because you will not learn to love new things by listening to a few sermons, or by hanging out with church friends, or by attending church when it's convenient for you and your family, sports families. We all need to be engaged in the life of the church, and we all need to make sacrifices for our own spiritual health. If you want to be spiritually formed, you need to sit under the preaching of the Word week after week, year after year. You need to live your life with other people where they will be all up in your business and you will be all up in their business. And you need to worship Jesus consistently and constantly and obey Him in big and small ways. And this is how you change. When these things become a part of us, we develop new loves and new desires. Our loves are reordered 
if you read St. Augustine, our hearts are rehabituated. We learn to love things that you didn't love before. And the work that God does in our lives overflows into the way that we love other people. The prayer of Paul, increasing and abounding in love for those in the church and for the world. If you read the Pauline epistles in the New Testament, there's kind of a common theme. Um, if you read through Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, um, the, the other letters that he writes. And this is kind of the pattern, um, just FYI. Um, you beloved saints of God, what is wrong with you? But here's the gospel. And Paul recognizes there's something, even after you've been in church, even after you've heard the gospel, even after you've lived your life with believers after years, there still needs to be a change. And Paul understands that. This is what ministry is. The slow work of submitting yourself to the word of God and submitting yourself to other people. God must be the one that does this impossible work in the Thessalonian church. Not our willpower, not the will of the pastors or the elders or the leaders. It's God. And when God changes us by the gospel, we, we love new things. It means that if we do ministry, we love people more than we love the goal. It means that we strive not to impress people, but to serve people. So this is what Paul's praying for in the church, a love. And then verse 13, if you have in front of you, I want, want to point out these two verses. So that, so that Paul and his colleagues are praying for the church to grow in love because it's in this love that they will be further rooted in their blameless and holy, blamelessness in holiness as they await the return of Christ. So, my last point, the holiness that Paul prays for. Paul says, I want you to be blameless in holiness, meaning I want you to have a perfect holiness. And I want this to be done in light of the return that Christ is coming. So Paul is praying that they grow in love and that they will also grow in holiness. And next week we're going to talk more about this holiness that Paul is writing about in, as we look at 1 Thessalonians 4. But let me just talk for just a moment, a, a, pre, a, um, a preview of next week. What is Paul praying for when he's praying for blamelessness and holiness? He's saying he wants their lives to look different than the pagans around them. And this is how it looks different. Holiness is not primarily doing things or refraining from things. Holiness is being set apart for God. To be holy not, doesn't mean that you're morally pure or perfect. This is part of it. Um, but holiness at its very root, the most fundamental level of, of holiness is who have you been set apart for? Have you been set apart for your company or your job? Have you been set apart for your family? Have you been set apart for yourself? When it comes to holiness, the question is not what should I be doing or not doing, but who do I belong to? To whom does my heart belong? And who your heart belongs to, that is going to determine what you do with your life. That's holiness. 
and Paul, he's thinking as he's writing to the Thessalonian church, um, this holiness and blamelessness, let me contrast that. As you've heard the gospel, there's the gospel has done something in you that all the religion that you experienced before could not do. All the trying, all the hard work that you've done, they could not do the things that the gospel has done in you. In First Thessalonians 1, let me read it to you if you don't have your Bibles. Verses 9 through 10. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The Thessalonian church came from a background where the all the Thessalonian church, before they understood the gospel, before Paul preached the gospel to them, they lived a pattern of life that was beholden to idols and false gods. They lived a pattern of life that was determined by what they could do for these deities. The gods and idols in the ancient world, they, they demanded sacrifices. To, they, they demanded to be appeased. So if you wanted to have be fertile and have children, if you wanted your crops to grow, if you wanted your businesses to succeed, if you wanted X, Y, and Z in your life, you had to look to a god. You had to look to an idol. And the way that you engaged with them was by sacrificing. And if this was an acceptable sacrifice that appeased this god, then maybe they would give you what you want. This is the type of thinking that they had in their, in their minds. But then Paul comes and he preaches a true gospel to them. He tells them about the true God, and the true God demands not sacrifices for themselves. The true God demands the blood of Christ. The true God is not, he does not demand something that they can do. In religion, we can get what we want if we do the right things. But the gospel tells us that in Christ, we get new hearts. We have new desires. We have a new master. We have a new king, a good king. And this is a king that we can set ourselves apart for. And this is what holiness is. This is how the gospel relates to obedience. This is how the gospel relates to holiness. Do you want to be holy? It's not do this or that. It's not refrain from this or that. Holiness is saying, I belong to Jesus. And he can do with me whatever he wants. Because my heart belongs to him. My heart has been changed by the gospel of Jesus, and therefore my heart belongs to Jesus. The gospel is what changes the Thessalonian church, and this is what captures them, and this is what needs to be true of us. For Paul to pray these things for the Thessalonian church ultimately means that the gospel does its work in the church. Again, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 9. You turned to God. The Thessalonian church turned to God in Christ, and their lives are now marked by an expectation that He will deliver them for good, that Jesus is coming. And next week we'll talk about how Paul's answered prayer might look in the lives of the Thessalonian church. Um, but this is a preview of that. And this is God's word to us. That this is something that we should pray for our, our own church, not just me as a pastor, but you guys. 
pray for this for, the, for IGC. To abound in love is to have your desires and affections reoriented. And when your loves are ordered properly, your eyes will be focused on Christ. And Jesus is the one who establishes us in blamelessness and holiness. Because guess what? You are blameless and holy in Christ. We have the righteousness of Christ and we can live in light of that. Will you pray with me? Father God, we um, there's so many things that we can pray for. Uh, and today we pray for this, that we would increase and abound in love in a way that would express itself in this church and in this community. And I pray that we would this would root us as we're established in blamelessness and holiness. God, would you do your work in this church through your word, through faithful ministry, through the word of Christ, and we submit to what you're doing. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.